So this afternoon, I'm really thrilled to have Frank Cottrell-Boyce in the reading corner. And we're going to be exploring the importance of reading aloud uh, to children. And I know, Frank, that you're a great advocate of reading aloud. I've heard you speak very passionately about this before. What do you think it is that's so important about reading aloud to children? Oh, so many things. (laughs) I think the first thing is that it's a deep pleasure to be read aloud to. And I think it's very, very important to associate reading with pleasure. I come across lots of children whose first experience of books and, in fact, of stories is, you know, being told to sit still and being asked to decode. Whereas if you're read to and that's your first experience of stories, then any time you open a book, whether it's the Haynes Manual for fixing your Austin Allegro or whatever, it will take you back to being cuddled up on the couch. Do you think that part of that pleasure that you talk about is that it's an act of love as well? Absolutely, whether whether that's from a parent or a carer or a sibling, but also the teachers, you know, the teachers who read to us at the end of lessons as a treat, that was an, it was an act of generosity as well, you know, so it's just a good thing. It's like baking, you know, it's it's a sharing thing, isn't it? Mm, that's right. I think you you give something of yourself in reading aloud exactly. to children. Exactly. Mm. Uh, do you have any re- recollections yourself of being read to when you were younger? Yeah, of course. I remember... Uh, I mean, so many different ones, and they're, they're all very... I mean, the first thing to say is that they're incredibly vivid memories. And I think if memories are vivid, that means you're getting something off them that you don't even... You can't really quantify what that is, but you know it's something anchoring and something very important. So I can remember going on holiday to a little cottage in Wales where it rained every day, and my dad read us uh, the Roger Lansling Green Tale of Troy, which just happened to be in the cottage. And... Uh, I've still got, I got a copy when I got home. I've still got that copy. And that was amazing. But also more public things. You know, I remember we would all sit on a little carpet in our classroom and the teacher would read to us at the end of the day as a treat. And that was always fantastic because it felt (laughs) non-transactional. You weren't being asked to give anything back. You were just being given this thing. And of course, then the other thing that I keep going on about is like, it's a very public thing, you know, so like, Jack and Ori was very, very important to me, hugely important. And loads of stories that I read now, I can only read in the voice that I remember from Jack and Ori. Can you remember any particular readers? I mean, I've got Bernard Cribbins has just popped into my mind, as you said, Jack well, and Ori. Bernard Cribbins, I think he is the most frequent Jack and Ori reader. And I think part of the reason that he commands such an enormous amount of affection is that anyone who's old enough to remember that remembers that, you know, and it's, it's a big deal. Uh, Kenneth Williams was astounding. But there's also um, Judy Dench reading A Dog So Small, which was, like, really intimate. And John Grant, who wrote Little Knows the Hunter. I can't read Little Knows the Hunter without hearing his voice. And I think that tells you something, that, that voices are very important to us. It seems extraordinary to me that when we hear a human voice, we recognise it. Even if it's someone not remotely meaningful to you, you we, we recognise voices as, as much as we recognise faces. Mm. It is like a fingerprint, isn't it? You yeah. don't even need to be seeing somebody's face to know who's talking yeah, exactly. to you. And I think the other thing that strikes me just listening to you talk is what you're developing through hearing somebody read is an ear for reading. So that when you look at the words on the page, you hear that, you don't just see it. <laughs> yes. And I think a lot of the way we're taught to read, which is obviously very important, 
is about decoding, you know, flat meaning. But by listening to somebody read, you learn that words are alive and that they can move you and they can make and they can hurt you. And I think all those lessons are, are very important and they can only be taught obliquely. They can only be taught by someone at the front of the class reading something apparently irrelevant. Mm. I mean, it sounds all so simple, and yet what we're really saying here is that it's really quite profound as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is like something that goes back, doesn't it? This goes back to sitting in the cave mouth round a campfire listening to someone tell a tale. And that's a, that's sort of part of the great chain of being. And if we you break a link in that, you break something crucial. But not all books... I know this from experience and uh, from being a teacher... Not all books read aloud well. You know, they just don't. And what is it that makes the qualities, do you think, of a book that reads well? A lot of children's books in particular are written in a voice. So that makes it easier. Even if that's not apparently the case, I always think about Just William, which is obviously not in William's voice. But what what makes Just William a thrill to read is that this huge tension between the narrative voice, which is actually quite lofty, and William's... Concerns which are basically gobstoppers. I think so. There's, I think with children's books in particular, there's th- there is often a voice there that that sort of allows you to read out loud. That's interesting too. I often share with student teachers a couple of extracts from Beatrix Potter, and I use the Beatrix Potter and then another version of Peter Rabbit that has been simplified, and then I ask them what the difference is and which they think would be easier to read. And although the words are easier in the simplified version, there's no voice guiding them through, like there is in the Beatrix Potter. Yeah, and there's sort of no point. <laughs> a cadence gives you meaning, doesn't it? And, and wakens pleasure. And I think the other thing that's very important, really, really important, like for life, is that you don't have to understand everything to love it and to take derive pleasure from it. This is a lesson that everybody knows about pop music, but nobody seems to grasp about poetry or or prose. It's like everybody knows that you can really love a pop song without having the slightest clue what it's actually about. And like some of my favourite Bowie songs, they're just sort of teetering along the edge of nonsense. But I think that's also true of Shakespeare, you know. You don't need to know what the hell Phil Fathom 5 means to know that it's absolutely amazing. You know, and only a voice can bring that home to you, I think. So you think that this is partly a connection with music and rhythm and heartbeat and all of those things? I cannot recite Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas without breaking into it. I literally can't get through it without crying because it speaks to me on such a profound level. And if you said to me, what does that poem mean? It would just be, isn't it dead sad that you have to grow up? That's it. It's like it could not be more banal. Yeah. Um, I know that you obviously read to your own children as well. What have they particularly enjoyed at different ages as they've been growing up? Well, we read to them quite late, you know, it's like because we've got quite a range of children in the house, so we're always sort of looking for something that would hover in between. I particularly remember reading to the older ones. We read the whole of Lord of the Rings, and you were saying like books that don't lend themselves to be read aloud really doesn't lend itself to be read aloud but then I discovered that in Lord of the Rings if you read the first sentence of any paragraph and the last sentence of any paragraph you're basically not going to miss anything even if that paragraph is a page and a half long really (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot a lot of description there's a lot of description and word world building (laughs) yeah which uh, which all becomes props and design in the movies doesn't it um but that was joyous you know because it went on for ages and and that and we were kind of lost in a little land together for 
you know, probably six weeks or something. Oh, you did well, six weeks. And then my dad read that aloud to me when I was 11. It took him a lot longer than six weeks. Probably, <laughs> probably he read all the words. <laughs> Not just the opening and uh, closing uh, sentences. But I did have a similar experience, actually, uh, when The um, Hobbit was dramatised on the radio. I think it was Paul Daneman um, did that. And we used to pull up in the car and listen to it on the radio on a Sunday night, no matter where we were, and there'd be rain beating on the um, windscreen and we'd be huddled up in the car listening to The Hobbit. It was amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, last time we were in Ireland, when it, it just rained every day and we were kind of driving around seeing Cousins. Vanity Fair, absolutely mm-hmm. mind-blowing. It was just brilliant. Tell me about your own books as well and writing and how important that feel for the read aloud has been to you and your writing process. Well, that was a revelation to me because, like, the first book I wrote, you know, I wrote, uh, like, as a novelist, you know, really enjoying writing words down that people are going to read off a page as opposed to what I'd done before, which was be a screenwriter where quite a lot of the word counts is actually very work-a-day. You know, it's interior, studio, day, 12.30, you know. It's very instructional. So I was kind of really letting fly and really enjoying it. And, of course, as soon as your book comes out, you, if you're a children's writer, you are going to end up reading it aloud to big crowds of kids, a lot of whom have no idea what they're doing there or what you're doing there. So reading aloud for me since then has been as much a discipline as anything else. It's like I, I write a page and I think, would I want to read this out? If a kid said, can you read page 73, would I be comfortable reading page 73? So it's become a kind of uh, quality control for me as well. I wonder if that's a really good moment to ask you whether you would mind reading from your forthcoming novel. Yes, I'm going to read. So this is a story called Runaway Robot. So in the bit that I'm about to read, the hero, uh, Alfie... And it's gone to, is it, for reasons that I can't explain, is in an airport where, well, basically, he plays truant from school, but instead of playing truant around the back of a bus stop, he sort of takes himself off to the airport's arrival section, which is more comfortable and uh, has lots of chairs and distractions. But he's lost something in the airport and has gone to Lost Property to look for it. You've got to imagine it's slightly in the future. Lost Property is very high-tech. There are robots and lights that and variable lights, and they're wa- walking through this vast, cavernous, place of lost property where he's seeing all these amazing things that people have lost like false teeth and coffins and and, and a huge helmet that he's just walked past. There was a hand on the shelf, three times the size of a human hand. It had long pointy fingers made of jointed steel. When I tried to pick it up it was so heavy I could barely lift it, let alone carry it. So I had to rest it on my shoulder like a soldier carrying a rifle and follow her, that's the woman who helps, back the way we came. I had to rush to catch up with her or would have been locked in there forever, lost as a long-lost coffin. We passed that helmet thing again. It looked at me. Again. Only this time, it definitely was not a trick of the light. Its eyes flickered blue. I tried to hurry past it. Happy to help was way ahead of me now. The light followed her. I could see a cone of light ahead, but everything around me was in darkness. Then out of that darkness, something grabbed me. I didn't want to look, but I had to. A metal hand. But this was on the end of a metal arm. And the metal arm was attached to the shoulder of a massive metal body. And the massive metal body was lying flat on the shelf. At one end of the metal body was that helmet with the flickering blue eyes. Armadillo-like, 
plated steel fingers curled around my flesh. The hand moved, my hand up and down. I was almost rigid with fear. Then something flashed across my brain. Are you shaking hands with me? I am delighted to meet you. I'm used to that voice now, but the first time you hear it, it's a bit of a shock. It's a voice that could stop traffic. I wish you could hear it. A mixture of wind and steel, like bagpipes playing inside a washing machine. Is this your hand? I asked, turning round so it could see the hand hanging over my shoulder. I can answer almost any question. Is this your hand? I'm sorry, I'm unable to answer that question. The helmet turned towards me. Two eyes set in huge dark pits, sparked blue as they saw me. The mouth was wide as a letterbox and burned an electric fire yellow when it spoke. Imagine looking into the slot of a toaster and you'll know what I mean. In fact, there was a slight smell of burning electricity. Wires and flickering valves stuck out from the top of his head. I tried to calm down. I could see that there was a catch inside the metal hand that more or less matched another catch inside the handless wrist. Hold your wrist up, I said. I am your obedient servant. Great, I've never had a servant before. Do you know how this fastens? I am the world's most knowledgeable robot. I can answer almost any question. So do you know how to put your hand back on then? I'm sorry, I'm unable to answer that question. Oh my goodness me, I think it's the same robot in my sat now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now I see you about reason out loud. And, and When I read that extract out, that line about, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. All the kids laughed at that. So that be, that's become a kind of running gag. But I'd not clocked that before, that that was that funny, you know. It is hilarious. So you were going to tell us something else about reading aloud. Oh, this is a long story. But basically, through the reader organisation, I came across someone who'd been in a prison reading group. And, you know, he'd been in for violent crime. And this was with the reader organisation, which doesn't pull any punches in one it's reading. So they'd been working their way through Henry V. And he said this amazing thing. He said... What he loved about the reading group was that it was the only time in his whole life when he'd ever felt fully alert, fully awake, without feeling threatened. I mean, that is amazing. And it, it, it was something that I was going to ask, really, was about reading aloud to adults. And in a way, you've answered that. It is as important for adults as it is for children. But it doesn't happen that often, does it? No, I, I mean, I'm patron of the reader organisation, which specifically does that in you know quite difficult places in prisons in homes for people with alzheimer's young mums and things like this and it, it is magic I mean, it is magic but I'm, i think it's partly because a lot of those people even if their lives have gone awry they have been implanted with that look you know it does take you back to a safer time when you were sitting on your grandmother's knee or whatever and it, it kind of clicks on all those associations and takes you back to the core of who you really are. I mean, we've talked quite a lot about the value of reading aloud. What about what we choose to read to children? Does that matter? I mean, some people have a mantra, uh, it doesn't matter what you read as long as you're reading. Do you agree with that? I mean, if I agreed with that completely, then it wouldn't work so hard to make my books complicated and complex. I think it does matter what you put in your head, you know? It, it, I, I, I'm not talking in a kind of straight criteria way, oh, you shouldn't just be reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid or whatever. But I think, you know, we do, we do owe it to our kids to push them towards things that the market isn't pushing at them. Just to go back to Jack and Ori, which had its mission, you know, Jack and Ori had lots of very straightforward, populist, good, fun stuff. But it would also bring in stuff from around the world. 
And you can't possibly tell me at this point that British children would not be benefiting from being acquainted with non-British cultures. It, it would be good to be reading the Arabian Nights and tales from Russia and Africa and Jamaica. And Jack and Ori did do that. So there, I, think, I do think we owe it to them to, to push them a little bit and to, to bring to them what the market doesn't bring to them. And I do, although it might sound rather idealistic, I do believe that when you've heard somebody read their own poetry from whatever part of the world they are, it is much harder to think about picking up a gun. <laughs> yes, no, completely. Mm. So, Frank, it's uh, been such a delight to talk to you today about reading aloud and to hear that extract from your forthcoming book as well. No, thank you. It's uh, my favourite subject. <laughs>